0: Dear Father in heaven, thank you for the grace that you have shown to us in your son, Jesus. The unmerited favor that you have poured out upon us in your son and through your spirit. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would give us your spirit now to bless and enrich our study of your word. Help us to understand what it means to be saved by grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today we pick up with our eighth heresy Pelagianism. Everybody say, ooh. <laughs> yeah. This is one of the real boogeymen that continued to be in the backdrop at the time of the Reformation. When the Lutherans would say that the medieval church had lapsed back into a kind of Pelagianism. Or if they were feeling really fancy, they would say semi-Pelagianism. And we'll talk what all. will uh, Um, Pelagianism is and who it's named after here in just a second, but suffice it to say that this is another one of these heresies that doesn't go away. We've seen this again and again and again. It's not just that, oh, the church dealt with these heresies 16, 17, 1800 years ago and everything's good, we can move on. These things are perennial. They recur over and over again. Often and typically not by the same name, Right? nobody's walking down the street boasting of being a Pelagian. But the impulses and the elements of it keep coming up. And we'll see that again with our um, heresy today. To start with, got a picture from a few weeks ago. It's a lovely picture. I actually don't know who took this picture. Did you take it, Jake? Well done. So a beautiful picture, cool kind of red filter on there for Reformation Day. But it's the baptism of Little Everly. Okay, we've had a number of baptisms this year. And my question for you as we start is, Why do we baptize babies? Hmm. I actually don't want you to answer this right now. I don't want you to answer this right now. I want you to, to think about it, ponder it, because it's going to come up. It's very relevant to this heresy in particular. Why do we baptize babies? All right. Put a pin in it. We'll come back to it. First, our weekly quiz done just for fun and not as a verdict on your faith. Here we go. Don't shout out your answer. Just... Give your first knee jerk reaction circle true or false. Number 1. Grace is best understood best understood as a hand up from God. Number 2. All humans are born sinful. Number 3. Good works are the natural fruit of faith. Number 4. Babies don't need baptism because they're innocent. And number five, the cross is proof that we cannot save ourselves. More handouts? Uh, Oh, for these guys. I thought there was, yes. I got it. Cool. All right. What is Pelagianism? Number one on your handout. Pelagianism is the heresy that denies the existence of original sin. Now, there were other things that flowed out of this um, that also went along with it. But the most, at the most basic level, this was the, the crux of the heresy. It denied the existence of original sin. And it was purported by this guy, Pelagius. That's who it's named after, Pelagianism. There we go. He had his Kodak moment right there. Uh, a little bit about Pelagius. <laughs> he was a British theologian and monk. We've seen this again and again with our heresies. The heretics are guys working from the inside. It's not some hit job from outside. It's guys who you might say they should know better, okay? But in any case, they are churchmen. He was, uh, what's interesting with Pelagius, and this is reflective partially of where we're moving along in the timeline chronology, uh, he was British, okay? So he's up in England. Most of the folks we've seen are down more, you know, Greece, Middle East, North Africa, but he was all the way from up in jolly old England. Uh, he lived around, um, go ahead, George. Okay, lived around 354 to 418. So he was a contemporary of Augustine, which is how you know he's going to get a beat down, right? If you're going up toe-to-toe with our guy Augustine, it ain't going to come out well for you. And it was Augustine that first really um, teed Pelagius off. He was scandalized by this prayer of Augustine. This is in Augustine's um, autobiography, which kind of created the genre, his Confessions, In that book, Augustine prays to the Lord, grant what you command and command what you wish. Grant what you command and command what you wish. Now, why would Pelagius be so upset about this? Sounds like a a pretty benign prayer. Grant what you command and command what you wish. What got him so upset about that is he's like, that's suggesting that we don't have the power to do what you command in ourselves. It suggests that we actually need Help, there needs to be some outside intervention. And Pelagius was like, no, God wouldn't command something if we can't do it. And if we won't do it, that was kind of the the heart of the matter. And from this, uh, from that little ripple, came all of these other big ones that would would come. One last thing about Pelagius that I came across this week from uh, another church father named Jerome who referred to Pelagius as a corpulent dog weighed down with Irish oats. (laughs) I didn't know you could get uh, chubby on Irish oats, but apparently you can. You have too much of that oatmeal, and according to Jerome, it's not going to work out for you. Pelagianism, then, the teachings that he advocated and purported and others around his time. Again, the key thing, the foundational thing, is that original sin doesn't cripple human nature. It just hinders it. So Pelagius was willing to talk about sin, perhaps even about original sin, but his idea is that, well, it doesn't really affect you ultimately. Maybe it just slows you down a little bit. Gives you a little hitch in your giddy-up. Um, or the, the image that was used is that it's like a magnet smeared with garlic juice. Now, interestingly, I, I was doing some searching on this, and this is actually a, a thing. Like magnets smeared with garlic juice. Has anybody ever heard of this before? No. All right. Well, if you search Google, people are still talking about that and not because of Pelagius. So, interestingly enough. So like a magnet smeared with garlic juice, it kind of you know, uh, retards its power but doesn't take it away. Say. Um, therefore, ergo, humans have power to merit salvation through free will. Okay. So this follows along. He believes, you know, original sin. No, we don't believe in that. Maybe you're, you know, you're slowed down a little bit, but you still have the capacity in you to do enough in order to merit salvation from God. Well, but wait a second. What about, what about grace? Where does that come in? More on that in just a second. He would say also then, and this all kind of hangs together. Death is natural. It's not the punishment for sin But that as God created humans in the beginning, death was just part of it. It's just a natural, like people will often say today, death is just part of life. Just part of life. And of course, there's a a little bit of of truth to it, at least as we live this side of the fall. But if you're talking really theologically in terms of God's ultimate intentions and his uh, way that things were in the beginning, no. Death came as a result of sin, not just because that's the way things are. He would talk somewhat about grace, but grace in a Pelagian framework is divine aid and especially example. And interestingly, this is, you talk about how heresies um, come up again and again in the liberal theology of the early 1900s, what's called the social gospel and so forth. Very similar ideas were talked about when it came to, well, what is Jesus doing on the cross? And for more liberal theologians, they would say, well, he's giving us the perfect Example of self-sacrifice. Well, is he actually accomplishing something there for us to forgive our sins? Well, no. But he's showing you and me how we can live the best life. Okay, now, the best life is one where you're really, you know, giving your all for others, sacrificing yourself. That's that's not grace. That's not grace. But in a Pelagian uh, schema, that's kind of the idea. All right. Questions so far about Pelagianism or Pelagius himself? A lot of what we know about him is through Augustine and so there's part of me that's like we've got to temper it a little bit time like if everything you knew about somebody was through their worst enemy you'd have to wonder like okay am I getting the full picture here and so there's just there's that caveat um, but he did have some writings as well and he had he had traveled down south and that's where he had encountered Augustine wasn't through his time up in, up in England He didn't have the internet yet and so he had to meet him more firsthand. Uh, I like this quote from uh, Reformed theologian J.I. Packer. He says, Pelagianism is the natural heresy of zealous Christians who are not interested in theology. Okay? Which is exactly the kind of thing you'd expect a theologian to say, to be fair. Uh, but what he's saying is, there's something about the, the impulse of Pelagianism that comes naturally anytime you get a Christian who's really zealous, okay, who wants to be really serious about you know, about their faith, about following Jesus, but if there's no depth to it, if there's no depth to that faith. What J.I. Packer is suggesting is that this Pelagianism is a natural place where we go because we think, you know what, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, God likes me, right? He is going to honor and reward me for really trying hard and doing a good job. That's a, a very much a can-do kind of attitude. It's kind of a, a basic default Pelagian posture. And J.I. is suggesting, anytime we don't have that real depth in theology and you know, biblical doctrine, that we can fall into that as well. Okay. All right, so then let's make just briefly a case for Pelagianism, right? What's good about this? What does it have to say? Well, what Pelagius was so zealous about and what he really cared about, number two, What he managed to emphasize is that Pelagianism emphasizes the importance of moral responsibility, of moral responsibility. Pelagius got really concerned when he heard Augustine and all his talk about being saved by grace, not works, and that it doesn't matter about your efforts. What matters is God's compassion toward us in Christ. Pelagius was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down there, boss. And interestingly, people will still have the same reaction to the gospel today. So you're telling me that people are saved by grace, not because of anything in them, not because of anything that they do. He's like, listen, you are just, that is a counsel for chaos. What you're doing is telling people they can live however they like. It doesn't matter. And they, at the end of the day, can still be saved by grace. Is that a fair, is that a fair critique? Is there something to that? What do you think? I mean, because people will still say this nowadays, like, oh, especially Lutherans, you Lutherans, you always talking about being saved by grace, not by works and all this. Isn't that dangerous? It, isn't that just license to live however you like? And then at the end of the day, be like, oh, by the way, I've got a grace card here, God, can you just cover for me? What do you, how do you respond to that? Or is there no response? And yes, we're wrong. Any thoughts? Yeah, Bill? I have as much uh, difficulty responding to that as I would, as I do to, uh, if you recall the movie Dead Man Man Walking. Yeah. As I do about a deathbed conversion. Yeah. So that's the the Sean Penn one, right? Uh, Yeah. He was the convent. and Susan Surrender was the. None. uh, Yeah. But I, I have as much difficulty. That sets up a difficult thing for me to deal with. Yeah. A deathbed conversion. Yep. uh, A walking to the executioner conversion. Yep. Uh, Yeah, no, Bill brings up a good point, and that is a good connection. Like, what about those deathbed conversions? The person who uh, has lived a completely anti-God way of life and then at the 11th hour says, oh, wait a second, you know, I do believe. Oh, really? Oh, wait a second. Okay, yeah, Priscilla? Ah, oh, what about the thief on the cross? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Say it yeah. says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> Don't like you anymore. No, okay. This puts some importance on time. Like, oh, good. How long do you have to be? Yeah. Responsible or good to that bill. So that's the thing with what Bill's saying is like like we're on God's time and he gets to determine like I like that, that, yeah. So where like if you're you know, been saved on your deathbed or right as an infant, like what's it matter to us? It's either way it's a blink to God. It's a either way it's a blink to God. That's very well put. So time we have a human perspective on time. So whether it's at the eleventh hour or the first, yeah, Lynn. Bingo. Yes, great connection. That's exactly right. So you remember Jesus' parable of the laborers in the vineyard and whether they had been working all day slaving the backbreaking labor or they just came for that le- the 11th hour. That's where we get that phrase from, is from that, that story. He pays them all the same. His grace is the same for all. Yeah, Lane. I think it's the way you look at it, too, because I look at it as those people have had the blessing of knowing the Lord their whole life. They've missed out on all of Oh, absolutely. And so to me, it's that was their punishment, if you will. Not that they need, but I mean, right. they nope. didn't know that grace yep. that I can give it to you, take, you know, thank you, I, I can handle it because they didn't have that their whole life. Yes. So They've been robbed of it in a I mean, Absolutely. It's not they finally did it at the end. Yeah. you, know, if you just got to look at it the other way, the flip, flip side. You're, you're absolutely right. Now, you guys are all sounding so pious now, but I know Bill was just speaking <laughs> what all of us actually believe, which is that, now wait a second. Okay, yes, that's all well and good, but if I had been one of those laborers in the vineyard, I would have been <laughs> grousing too. But I appreciate that at least you're thinking this through theologically. I saw another hand in the back there. Yeah, Pat. Yeah, that's true. You know, not all, you know, people who say we're converted. I mean, I went to a campus, a poor, and As a little Lutheran, a Lutheran girl. My friends would go out and party and do whatever they wanted, and then they would go to confession. and It's like, okay, yep. you know? But it's it what's in the heart. Right. Like in the John John 2, when Jesus sees the Daniel, Yeah. He knew exactly what was in his heart. Yep. Never met. An Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit. Yes, that's exactly right. God can see the heart. And so he's able to tell what's what's genuine, what's not. Yeah, Paul? Well there's good news here. i yes. not the judge. Yeah, that's that is good news. That we're not the judge. Right. There's freedom in the fact that we we lean on Christ. Tom? Yeah? I think that several chapters in First Corinthians that talks about this freedom versus responsibility. Absolutely. And there's the dynamic of how does it flow together. And as we've seen again and again with heresies, they often just fall off way too hard on one side or the other. Okay? Is there a a need and a place for moral responsibility? Absolutely. The Christian faith is not one of, uh, we're not called to licentiousness like, you know, Pat's classmates of, you know, going out and party and then confess. There's something intuitively that we're like, "Ah, that doesn't seem right either. And it's not. We'll talk some more about where good works do fit in here. But as I'm trying to make just a little bit of a case for Pelagianism, you can see again, where is he coming from? What is he trying to emphasize? And he wants to especially emphasize that moral responsibility. Let me give you just one um, passage that jives with this. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. You might say, Pastor, why do you quote from Scripture when you're making a case for these heretics? Isn't the problem that they weren't? you know, biblical, that they were anti-biblical? And no, the problem is that they are insufficiently biblical. The problem with heresies isn't that they aren't able to draw on the, on the Bible. Then, and now, people who believe all kinds of crazy stuff can draw on the, It's a big book, y'all. It's a big book. There's a lot of stuff in there. Um, it's not that they, they don't draw on the Bible. It's that it's insufficiently, thoroughly biblical. You just take one text. And draw it out and say, oh, this tells us everything we need to know. Case in point. This is a good passage from 2 Peter. But if this is, all, if this is what you kind of hang your hat on, you could get a distorted picture of, of grace in the Christian life. All right. So 2 Peter 1, starting with verse 5. For this very reason, Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. I just picture your, you know, uh, <laughs> picture your food lady when you were in elementary school and you go in with, you know, you've got the tray and here's Peter just whoop, womp. He's just giving you more and more of that green bean casserole, just lumping it on your plate. Like, all right, you need virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness. And, bro- and you're like, whoa, Peter, dude, like, chill out. But he's laying it all out there because he says, verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Could you read a passage like that and come away thinking that what really matters is my efforts? What really matters is my responsibility? I think you could. And we haven't even gotten into James in the famous James chapter 2. You know, faith without works is what? Dead. Dead. Okay. Now, Pelagius actually didn't lean on that passage a whole lot, but certainly in the arguments and debates of the Middle Ages and the time of the Reformation, boy, a lot of shots were fired across James chapter two. You know, faith without works is dead. Or again, you could go to Philippians chapter two. Paul says, "Therefore, my beloved brothers, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling." I'm Pelagius. I read Philippians 2. And I'm out. Boom. I rest my case, right? Well, You've got to work out your own salvation. You are the one that needs to be responsible for making your calling and election sure. It's all up to you. But Esther, what's the next verse say right after that one? Okay, sorry. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Work out your own, I just, I could always, kind of it work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Wah. For it is God who works in you, oh, yeah. both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right, so if you just read verse 12, you can get a false impression of the nature of the Christian life you've got to read those together. It's that both and. So we've seen again and again, It's that paradox of responsibility, moral responsibility and divine initiative. It's not either or, it's both and. Yeah, Hans, I can tell you want to say something. I keep thinking about his name. Uh, he, he, his, you know, temporary of Augustine. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. Uh, and that's 400 years past. Obviously, this is not something new. Correct, I mean, yes. Yeah, no, I mean, this is. copying is... somebody else. Yeah. yeah. He, he's just voicing it. He's, vo- he's voicing something. That's true. That These are ideas that undoubtedly had been floating around. That others had thought. I mean, he wouldn't have been the first person to read James and really wonder, well, yeah, what is is the nature of this? And so, in some ways, I mean, Luther, many people have made the point that Luther is really his his forebears are St. Paul and Augustine, and there's this continual recovery and returning to the gospel of grace because it is so um, counterintuitive and contrary to the way that we think things normally work. If, if it weren't that way, the gospel wouldn't be good news. It would be old news, right? It would just be, oh yeah, everybody knows that. But the fact that the gospel is this message that God has come and saved you by grace, simply and solely because of what Jesus has done for you, now we're getting to a, a world upending message, which is precisely what it was called in the book of Acts. So what's at stake then? A number of things. one, what is the natural condition of humanity? Pelagius has a very different picture of that and what uh, then implications come from that. Secondly, what is the nature of grace? What is grace? And then third, most significantly of all, what was the real purpose of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Okay. Condition of humanity, nature of grace, purpose of Jesus. All right, Seeing from my time, I am going to take just a few extra minutes since Anne gave that to me. Um, my wife has the power to, to do that. So <laughs> I think we'll probably need it. All right, so let's refute Pelagianism. Let's get into this. Number three, speaking at that foundational primary assertion uh, and proposition from Pelagianism, original sin is a fatal infection and not just a harmless accident. It's not just something incidental to our human nature that you can kind of shake off, slough off. No, it is a fatal infection. And uh, the core text that Augustine would go to and theologians ever after is Romans chapter 5. Go ahead and turn to to Romans 5, which is going to um, capture a couple of of different key points here. Okay, so Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 12, Paul writes this. He says, Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death re- reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. What uh, Paul is saying here in Romans is that sin is, in a sense, hereditary. Going all the way back to the garden, to Adam and Eve, when sin entered into the world, now it is passed down through our human lineage, as it were. It's not natural in the sense that this is not how God naturally, originally made us. But now, now we are all infected with this sinful nature. So why doesn't Jesus have? If Jesus is is truly human, this goes back to um, earlier heresies of docetism. He only seems to be human. Well, if Jesus is really human, why doesn't he have that sinful nature? Gene's passed on by his father. Okay, so he's got... Yeah! Right? He's got... It's a recessive trait, right? But, I mean, truly, it all, it all comes back to the virgin birth, right? Because of the virgin birth, Jesus is able to be like us in every way, it says in Hebrews, yet without sin. So he does, he does not inherit that sin of, of Adam and Eve. Which, again, just underscores the fact that it doesn't have to be this way. It's, it is because of, of how sin has entered into the world, but it didn't have to be that way. And so we notice here from this text, it uh, rebuts these two key points from Pelagius. One, that original sin is not really Uh, original. Every time that it comes in, it's a novel thing. It's a new thing because it isn't passed on, one. And two, the idea that death is not a punishment, but that that too is natural. No, no, no. Paul makes it clear here. Death is a punishment. He says it later in Romans 6 as well. The wages of sin is death, right? So death is, in a sense, a, a reward. It's a consequence of sin. It's not just something natural to the human lifespan, okay? In fact, the idea of it being a lifespan is itself uh, a result of sin. It's it's supposed to span eternally. In the Augsburg Confession, um, in our our Lutheran Confessions, we uh, right out of the bat refute this. Our church has condemned the Pelagians and others who deny that original depravity is sin, thus obscuring the glory of Christ's merit and benefits. Pelagians argue that a person can be justified before God by his own strength and reason. No, absolutely not. So, um, when thinking about uh, what is the, the true state of human nature apart from um, apart from God, uh, there's a, a few modifiers that we can use that go back to the scriptures, um, and I'm, I've found this to be um, helpful over the years. I've been teaching this in, in confirmation and so forth. So, apart from the Spirit, what are humans? First of all, humans are deaf. Okay, so um, in Acts chapter... What's that? Yeah, exactly. Oh, come again? All right. So they're deaf, right? Can't hear. We see this um, reflected, for instance, with there's that spiritual deafness, right? Not physically deaf, but spiritually deaf, as we see with Stephen, Book of Acts, first martyr. They don't want to hear. They stop their ears, right? La 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 la. Okay. That's what human nature is naturally like, apart from God. Secondly, it's dumb, not in the sense that it's stupid, but in the sense that can't, it can't speak God's truth. It can't truly um, call on him. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, uh, without the spirit of the Lord, no one can uh, confess Jesus as Lord. Okay, that's what we mean by dumb. Uh, thirdly, apart from the spirit, humans are blind. We cannot see the things of God because they are spiritually discerned, it says in 1 Corinthians 2. Okay, So, All right. deaf, dumb, blind. Okay, Very sad. Um, and then next, we are, apart from the spirit, enemies of God. Romans 8, 7 says the natural man is at enmity with God. So here I need to put them up, put him up. All right? It's pretty good, actually. Uh, And then finally, the coup de grace, that is with all this human nature is really dead. All right, so without without God, we are dead. Okay, we're lost. We're not just kind of oh, we're we're wounded, or you know, we always like to go back to Monty Python and the Black Knight. It's only a flesh wound. He's not quite dead yet, um, as he's getting limbs lopped off left and right. So, no, human nature, apart from God, is utterly, totally dead and depraved. Now, just a side note, does that mean that humans, apart from God, are not capable of of doing good things, things that can help their neighbor, that are a benefit to society? That's not what that means. That's not what that means. the, The question is, what's going to avail before the Father? Because God, who's able to see hearts, he knows that even when humans do things that outwardly look good or that actually are beneficial to others, still there's a heart that is set apart from him and that those motives are ever and always mixed, right? There's something deeper in that uh, of that self-justifying impulse so that all the way down, that sin just runs right through there. Even so, we're thankful that this is what we call it the first use of the law, where the law is a curb, keeps a cap on things. Believers, unbelievers alike uh, will have that, that sense of the law written on their heart and will act according to the dictates of conscience to a certain extent. Right? That's what allows civilization still to go on, even though not everybody believes in, in God. Okay. All right. Thoughts, questions about that, about original sin and what it does to our human nature. I saw the title of a book. I'm going to have to get it. It was called Napkin Theology. And the whole thing is like doing little pictures of big theological concepts. So I was like, oh, that's right up my alley. Um, anyway, questions about that? Now, um, another side note on this is one of the uh, criticisms of the doctrine of, of original sin through the years, and especially in modern times, post-enlightenment, is the idea well, that's such a dour perspective on on humans. And that you just, you think too little of people. You've got too negative of an assessment. You should really be rosier. Um, But my friend Dave Zall, whom some of you have heard speak over here at Camp Arcadia, he wrote a a book last year, two years ago, called Low Anthropology, which is kind of his fancy way of talking about original sin. And anthropology is just, what's your view of human nature? And what he calls a low anthropology is having a properly sober view of human nature and what we're capable of. Incidentally, the founders of this country also had, if you will, a low anthropology. Madison in particular, he had this profound understanding that humans, because they are sinful, can't be trusted. Okay? And so if you're setting up a government that understands original sin, what are some things that you might want to have in the, the structure of that government? Checks and balances, right? You're not going to, to locate everything, all the power into one human being because as it says in the scriptures, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there's no salvation, right? And so we're going to need a government that recognizes that, that operates according to the rule of law because all y'all have that infection of sin within you. So while that low anthropology or original sin might sound dour or negative, actually it enables us to live freely it enables us to have compassion and grace toward others because you recognize everybody's a sinner i need to i need to show patience and grace with them too because they're also in need of it just as i am all right let's carry on number 4 grace is not optional this isn't just something that you could add-on. It's a nice add-on, right? It doesn't come with the base model of the Christian life. It's more, you know, if you get the premium, the luxury, then you can add a little grace up on top. No, it is fundamental. It is the core. So let's talk a little, little bit about grace. And for those of you who went through our Roots of Faith class, I'm going to share some things that will look familiar to you. One, what grace is not. It's my college picture there. Um. <laughs> Uh, I used to be blonde, actually. Um, no. What grace is not? Grace is not stuff from God or spiritual steroids. Sometimes people get this impression that, that grace is like this kind of substance that every once in a while you need like a booster shot of grace. And that's kind of what it is. Like, okay, my grace is run, uh, my grace from God is running low. Uh, you know, kind of the, the tub is being depleted. And so I, I go to church or I read the Bible, and it's sort of like boop, Uh, refill on my grace tank. Now, it's undoubtedly the case that when it comes to worship and reading your Bible, other spiritual disciplines, it helps to to fortify and strengthen us in faith. But is it somehow like topping off God's grace? Like, "Ah, I need need a little top off there because I'm not sure God really filled me up. No, you should not be understood as spiritual steroids, stuff from God, that as um, Pelagius would say, and also medieval theologians some of those Roman Catholics, they would say, well, grace is what God gives you in order that then you're able to do the good works that merit salvation. They would say, no, 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 no. You can't be saved just by your works. You need grace. And by grace, they meant that spiritual steroids that then, like those superpowers, like Mario, after he eats the toad and the boom, 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 boom. boom. Now, thank you, Caleb. Now you can actually go out there and do the good works. But at the end of the day, it's still your good works that justify you in that scheme, that is not grace. This idea that grace is just, well, it's a hand up rather than a handout. No, I'm not saying that's a bad saying. There's a, there's a lot to be said for that, you know, worldly speaking. But if you're talking about what grace is, it's not just a hand up rather than a, a handout. It's not just God enabling you to do a little bit more than what you otherwise could do. Or that he's meeting you halfway Yes, God is going to, he's going to help you out. He's going to reach down and you know, give, you, give you a little encouragement. But it's still up to you to meet him part way. You've got to meet him halfway. That's not grace. So, what is grace? Grace is his unmerited favor toward sinners. So, I said that grace is not just stuff, it's not spiritual steroids. So, what is it? It's, it's in the heart of God. Grace is his posture, his attitude toward you and me, his unmerited favor, his unconditional love toward us. That's what grace is. Grace is in the eye of the beholder, and the beholder is our Heavenly Father. See, That's what grace is. Uh, there's also, I didn't put it on here, but sometimes the acronym is used, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Have you ever heard that? Mm-hmm. That's pretty good, too. That's pretty good, too. God's riches at Christ's expense. Uh, theologian Paul Zoll, the father of Dave Zoll, I mentioned, he says grace is God's one-way love for us in Christ. Okay? And what he means by that is that it's all about God reaching down. You see, is our buddy here, is he able to reach up? Is he able to do anything to help himself? No. If human nature truly is dead, as the scripture says, that means dead. You can't do anything. So it's not the case that, oh, you're in the water and you're struggling a little bit even. And he throws the lifesaver and you're able to grab onto the lifesaver at least. And, and then he'll pull you in. You could have done that yourself. You needed help. But still you do your part. No, 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 no. Grace is you're dead in the water and Jesus dies in, dives in, dies himself in order to bring you out, right? When I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. See? He jumped in to rescue you and me when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. See. Makes all the difference. That's one-way love, not halfway love. And that is finally then the source and strength of the Christian life of faith. Grace is not something that, it's, it's not just a, a, you know, a welcome gift when you come in, like our honey, right? You get the honey, you don't get the honey every week. You only get the honey that first time, right? We're not just a honey dispensary here. Uh, that's a Maybe a, now I need to reevaluate how we do our, our visitor gifts. Um, <laughs> grace is not just the honey the first time you come to the Lord. Grace is uh, the whole life. It's the meat and potatoes of the Christian life too, right? We live our whole lives under the banner. There's the great line from Song of Solomon. His banner over me is love. His banner over you the whole life long is love. You don't move beyond that. You don't move beyond grace into now the real Christian life is now I just, you know, got to buckle down and, and get busy. The whole Christian life is lived under the aegis of God's grace. All right. Thoughts, questions, pushback? Too much grace? So how did he... Um... Deal with, like, uh, in Romans uh, 3, uh, the all have sinned. Right, right. And have fallen short. He said, like, No, they didn't all sin. Uh, or they sinned not, not nearly. It's enough. not debilitating. It's something that you can still work through. Yeah. Now, I mean, that's all, all I can imagine is that would be the way. The key thing for him is that if it's not an infection, if it's not something that you inherit, well, sins might come your way. Yeah, all of us sin. I mean, Pelagius would say that. Well, yeah, everybody sins. But are you able to work through it and work beyond it? Whereas Augustine, Luther, the Holy Scriptures would say, no, it's debilitating apart from God's intervention and his work on our behalf. This uh, This is the very nature of grace. Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You want to know what it means to be saved by grace? You were dead, now he made you alive. That's the essence of of grace. All right, a couple more things as I'm taking some uh, stoppage time, as they say, our soccer friends here. Um, Number five, good works are the fruit of faith. So where's good works in all this then? And this is a fundamental Lutheran concept. And this is a a woodcut from a, a Reformation era Artist. I forget what the, the name of the artist was. But um, if you can read German and also that fancy medieval German print, you would uh, see that you've got glaub at the bottom, which is faith. Then you've got liebe uh, on the trunk, which is love. And then up at the top, Werke, which is works. Okay? So this is a very biblical image. Jesus uses this. Of course, when we talk about the fruits of the spirit, the root is faith. The root at the heart of it is that faith that trust in Christ. The stock, what grows up toward God and then branches out toward others, is love. And the fruit is works. And this is where, when if somebody invokes James 2 and says, Oh, you know, faith without works is dead, it's nothing. The solution is not to take some fruit and to tape it onto the tree, right? If your tree is not bearing fruit, what do you need to do? Well, maybe you need to cut it down, right? (laughs) need need to prune it, but the problem is at the roots, right? The problem isn't just the fact that you have no fruit. It goes deeper. You need to go down to the very heart of the matter. And so it is. When somebody is being unfruitful in the life of faith, the solution isn't to say, hey, do more good works, right? Try harder. If you do that, in fact, as Paul tells us, that just makes things worse. You know this from every kid, not adult, certainly not my wife, who sees a no trespassing sign. What do they suddenly want to do? You better believe it. No trespassing, smash, smashing. Um, there's something in that human nature that wants to rebel, right? That wants to push back. That's sinful nature, okay? And so if you tell somebody, do it, do more. Now, if, when there's the, a coercive threat, people will sometimes do it but they're going to do it grudgingly, right? And ultimately they're going to look for opportunities to fight back, to battle back. What changes hearts is faith, is receiving and believing the grace of God given in Christ that now we're going to live a new life through the power of the Spirit. The the fruit of it is the works. That makes all the difference. And in the Great Reformation era hymn. I think I made us sing this on Reformation Day, even though it has thirty-six verses or something. Um, <laughs> Salvation unto us has come, and I, I just it sums up so beautifully here. This is in verse nine. Okay, faith clings to Jesus' cross alone and rests in Him unceasing, and by its fruits, true faith is known with love and hope increasing. For faith alone can justify; works serve our neighbor and supply the proof that faith is living. You couldn't get it any better right there. Just a, a simple one verse, one stanza summary of that relationship of faith and works. It's the, the works that flow from the, the root of faith. Okay, let's, let's uh, we got just a couple more things here. Number six, babies need baptism. Why? Because they're sinful too, y'all, all right? Uh, babies are sinful too. This uh, it will not be any news to any parents, right? Where they, you get this little bundle of joy who immediately pees right in your face. Um, but I mean, this goes back to, to David. Psalm 51 is one of the, the key texts on this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Um, right at the, the very beginning, from the very beginning, Humans are sinful. Yes, they're cute. Yes, they're cuddly. Yes, they're sweet. Yes, the kingdom of God is, uh, belongs to such as these. But they still need the regenerating waters of baptism. I've got a little video here for you from our friends at Lutheran Satire. Let's see if I can get it to work. Um, all right. So this is the character in here is going to be called Jim the Anabaptist Fireman. <laughs> and Anabaptists were those in the, the time of the reformation who said baptism is not necessary for, for babies cuz babies are born innocent they don't need it okay so. it's chill it's yeah you you baptist vibe it's chill yeah you i am so glad you are here There are many babies inside this burning hospital that need saving. Fear not. I know how to get people saved. So you going to put water on that fire? Of course not. You shouldn't rescue people from a fire until they're old enough to decide if they want to be rescued. That's incredibly stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you worried that those babies will burn up before they get old enough to be rescued? Of course not. Everybody knows children are flame retardant until they reach the age of accountability. <laughs> Alright. Oh, well, so. Yeah. i point. like a copy of that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's we need the water because we're all born on fire. Everybody, you come into this world with sin. Right. And so that, this is the, the promise. God desires all people to be saved. And sometimes, I know for myself, because I had this season where I had really kind of strayed from, from this belief. And I would come to more of like, if you will, you know, only those who, are, who can say so should be baptized. But um, what I came to recognize is we shouldn't make salvation harder than God himself wants to make it. If he desires all people to be saved, we've seen the attitude that our Lord has toward babies. And he says, let the little ones come to me and forbid them not. Remember, it was the disciples who were like, get those babies out of here. Jesus is like, come on, let them come to me. And he has made this promise. Baptism now saves you. Now, what's different for Lutherans, and this is in keeping with you know, ancient orthodoxy, but we believe, yes, babies are saved by baptism, by the promise that God has made, water in the word. They can still walk away from the faith. Okay? Anybody still can walk away from the faith. Not all Christians believe this. Some believe in that once saved, always saved. And that's where some of the um, pushback will come on our belief about infant baptism. Like It can't be so simple because if it really is just the case that, oh well, why aren't we out there just baptizing everybody that we can? And then they're just, they're good. Because there is this mysterious interplay still of our sinful human nature along with that renewed nature through and the gift given in baptism so that somebody can reject it. And so we want to take that seriously as well. Now that's a longer conversation, one that I'm happy to to have, but suffice it to say, and this was actually, interestingly, you might think, okay, so they came to this understanding of original sin and then they started baptizing babies. It was just the opposite. And in fact, uh, Augustine pointed to the practice, which had already been common from the earliest days of the church, of infant baptism. And he said to Pelagius, why do we baptize babies if they're not sinful? And Pelagius, answer was crickets. He didn't have an answer. He's like, oh, that's actually a really good argument. Uh, they were baptizing babies from the, from the very beginning of the earliest days of the, of the church. All right, then, let's close it up. Last thought here. When it comes down to it, and this was a a verse that the reformers would go back to again and again. If salvation can be earned, then Christ is discarded. Mm -hmm. What's the point of the cross if at the end of the day you have what's in you? In order to, yeah, I mean, Jesus helps you a little bit, but you can do it. No. Paul says, Galatians 2, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He died for nothing. If it wasn't to rescue us, redeem us, when we could not rescue ourselves. So, how not to be a Pelagian? A few thoughts. One, don't skip Good Friday. Okay? Good Friday is important. Go, being there and remembering the depths of what Jesus did for us. We just want to skip right ahead to Easter. But you need Good Friday, y'all. That's part of the story, too. Secondly, goes without saying what we just said: baptize babies. Alright? Bring those babies to us. Let's baptize them. And then raise them up in the faith. Okay. Thirdly, lament death. Lament death. Death is the last enemy of God. Thanks be to God that because of Jesus, death doesn't have to be feared. And in a sense, we can even look at it. It becomes now the, the portal to eternal life. Even so, death is not the way things are supposed to be. And when Jesus comes again, it will be no more. And finally, keep on confessing. Keep confessing our our sins because in that rhythm of recognizing and remembering the fact that we are sinners, then we are returning to the grace of God, that we depend on Him, that apart from Him, we can't do anything. We need it. How not to be a Pelagian. Okay, then. Our quiz. This is kind of an easy one. I think you guys ace this one. I hope. Uh, Number one. Grace is best understood as a hand up from God true or false false, false. not a hand number two all humans are born sinful true. True. true number three good works are the natural fruit of faith true. true okay and so if you ever get one of those Lutheran's who the fancy term is antinomian say ah I don't need any good works I don't need to do good works I you know, as one of my teachers said it with his tongue in cheek, you know what, it doesn't matter whether or not I help the old lady across the street or push her in front of the bus. <laughs> it's the fruit of faith. If somebody starts pushing old ladies in front of the bus, I'm going to call you to account, all right? Fourth, babies don't need baptism because they're innocent. False. Or five, the cross is proof That we cannot save ourselves. True. True, true, true. true. Cool. All right. Thank you, guys. We've got one more heresy we're going to look at next week. Gnosticism. Before we tie a bow on our study of the heresies. Thank you very much for being here. See you then. And join us.